Hello, and welcome back to Sleepy Time with Rogan. Today we'll be reading Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 It was a rimy morning, and very damp. I had seen the damp lying on the outside of my little window, as if some goblin had been crying there all night, and used the window for a pocket handkerchief. Now, I saw the damp lying on the bare hinges and spare grass, like a coarser sort of spider's webs, hanging itself from twig to twig and blade to blade. On every rail and gate, Wet lay clammy, and the marsh mist was so thick that the wooden finger on the post directing people to our village, a direction which they never accepted, for which they never came there, was invisible to me until I was quite close under it. Then, as I looked up at it while it dripped, it seemed to my oppressed conscience like a phantom devoting me to the hoax. The mist was heavier yet when I got out upon the marshes, so that instead of my running at everything, everything seemed to run at me. This was very disagreeable to a guilty mind. The gates and dikes and banks came bursting at me through the mist, as if they cried as plainly as could be. A boy with somebody else's pork pie. Stop him. The cattle came upon me like suddenness, staring out of their eyes and steaming out of their nostrils. Holla, young thief, one black ox with a white cravat on who even had to my awakened conscience something of a clerical air, fixed me so obstinately with his eyes, and moved his blunt head round in such an acquisitionary manner as I moved round, that I blubbered out to him. I couldn't help it, sir. It wasn't for myself I took it, upon which he put down his head, blew a cloud of smoke out his nose, and vanished with a kick-up of his hind legs and flourish of his tail. All this time I was getting on towards the river, but however fast I went, I couldn't warm my feet, to which the damp cold seemed riveted, as the iron was riveted to the leg of the man I was running to meet. I knew my way to the battery, pretty straight, for I had been down there on a Sunday with Joe, and Joe, sitting on an old gun, had told me that when I was pretense to him regularly bound, we would have such larks there. However, in the confusion of the mist, I found myself at last too far to the right and consequently had to try back along the riverside, 
on the bank of loose stones above the mud and the stakes that staked the tide out, making my way along here with all dispatch. I had just crossed a ditch, which I knew to be very near the battery, and had just scrambled up the mound beyond the ditch when I saw the man sitting before me. His back was towards me, and he had his arms folded, and was nodding forward, heavy with sleep. I thought he would be more glad if I came upon him with his breakfast in that unexpected manner, so I went forward softly and touched him on the shoulder. He instantly jumped up, and it was not the same man, but another man. And yet this man was dressed in coarse gray, too, and had a great iron on his leg, and was lame, and hoarse, and cold. And he was everything that other man was, except that he had not the same face, and had a flat, broad, brim, low-crowned felt hat on. All this I saw in a moment, for I had only a moment to see it in. He swore an oath at me, made a hit at me. It was a round, weak blow that missed me and almost knocked himself down, for it made him stumble, and then he ran into the mist, stumbling twice as he went, and I lost him. It's the young man, I thought, feeling my heart shoot as I identified him. I dare say I should have felt the pain in my liver too, if I had known where it was. I was soon at the battery, after that, and there was the right man hugging himself and limping to and fro, as if he had never all night left off hugging and limping, waiting for me. He was awfully cold, to be sure. I half expected to see him drop down before my face and die of deadly cold. His eyes looked so awfully hungry too, that when I handed him the file and he had laid it down on the grass, it occurred to me that he would have tried to eat it if he had not seen my bundle. He did not turn me upside down this time to get at what I had but left me right side upwards while I opened the bundle and emptied my pockets. What's in the bottle, boy? said he. Brandy, said I. He was already handling mincemeat down his throat in the most curious manner, more like a man who was putting it away somewhere in a violent hurry than a man who was eating it. But he left off to take some of the liquor he shivered all the while so violently that it was quite as much as he could do to keep the neck of the bottle between his teeth without biting it off. I think you have got the ague, said I. I'm much of your opinion, boy, said he. It's bad about here, I told him. You've been lying out on the meshes, and they're dreadful aguish, rheumatic too. I'll eat my breakfast afore they're to death of me, said he. I'd do that if I was going to be strung up 
to that there gallows as there is over there directly artwards. I'll beat the shivers so far. I'll bet you. He was gobbling mincemeat, meat bones, bread, cheese, and pork pie all at once, staring distrustfully while he did so at the mist all around us, and often stopping, even stopping his jaws to listen. Some real or fancied sound, some clink upon the river, or breathing of beast upon the marshes, now gave him a start. And he said suddenly, You're not a deceiving imp. You brought no one with you? No, sir, no. Nor give no one the office to follow you? No. Well, said he, I believe you. You'd be but a fierce young hound indeed, if at your time of life you could help to hunt a wretched warm it, hunted as near death and dunghill as this poor wretched warmint is. Something clicked in his throat, as if he had works in him like a clock and was going to strike, and he smeared his ragged rough sleeve over his eyes, pitying his desolation and watching him as he gradually settled down upon the pie, I made bold to say, I am glad you enjoyed it. Did you speak? I said, I was glad you enjoyed it. Thank ye, my boy, I do. I had often watched a large dog of ours eating his food, and I now noticed a decided similarity between the dog's way of eating and the man's. The man took strong, sharp, sudden bites, just like the dog. He swallowed or rather, snapped up every mouthful too soon and too fast. He looked sideways here and there while he ate, as if he thought there was danger in every direction of somebody's coming to take the pie away. He was altogether too unsettled in his mind over it, to appreciate it comfortably, I thought, or to have anybody to dine with him without making a chop with his jaws at the visitor, in all of which particulars he was very like the dog. I am afraid you won't leave any of it for him, said I timidly, after a silence during which I had hesitated as to the politeness of making the remark. There is no more to be got where that came from. It was the certainty of this fact that impelled me to offer the hint. Leave any for him? Who's him? said my friend, stopping in his crunching of pie crust. The young man that you spoke of that was hid with you. Oh, ah, he returned with something like a gruff laugh. Him? Yes. Yes. He don't want no widows. I thought he looked as if he did, said I. The man stopped eating and regarded me with his keenest scrutiny and the greatest surprise. Looked? When? 
just now. Where? Yonder, said I, pointing. Over there, where I found him nodding asleep and thought it was you. He held me by the collar and stared at me so that I began to think his first idea about cutting my throat had revived. Dressed like you, you know, only with a hat, I explained, trembling. And, and, I was very anxious to put this delicately, and with the same reason for wanting to borrow a file. Didn't you hear the cannon last night? Then, there was firing, he said to himself. I wonder you shouldn't have been sure of that, I returned. For we heard it up at home, and that's further away, and we were shut in besides. Why, see now, said he. When a man's alone on these flats, with a light head and a light stomach, perishing of cold and want, he hears nothing all night but guns firing and voices calling. Hears. He sees the soldiers with their red coats lighted up by the torches carried afore, closing in round him. Hears his number called. Hears himself challenged. Hears the rattle of the muskets. Hears the orders make ready, present, cover him, steady men, and is laid hands on, and there's nothing. Why, if I see one pursuing party last night, coming up in order, damn em, with their tramp tramp, I see a hundred, and as to firing, why I see the mist shake with the cannon, Arthur it was a broad day, but this man, he had said all the rest as if he had forgotten my being there. Did you notice anything in him? He had a badly bruised face, said I, recalling what I hardly knew I knew. Not here, explained the man, striking his left cheek mercilessly with the flat of his hand. Yes, there. Where is he? He crammed what little food was left into the breast of his gray jacket. Show me the way he went. I'll pull him down like a bloodhound. Curse this iron on my sore leg. Give us hold of the fowl, boy. I indicated in what direction the mist had shrouded the other man, and he looked up at it for an instant. But he was down on the rank wet grass, filing at his iron like a madman and not minding me or minding his own leg, which had an old chafe upon it and was bloody, but which he handled as roughly as if it had no more feeling in it than the file. I was very much afraid of him again, now that he had worked himself into this fierce hurry, and I was likewise very much afraid of keeping away from home any longer. I told him I must go, but he took no notice, so I thought the best thing I could do was to slip off. The last I saw of him, his head was bent over his knee and he was working hard at his fetter, muttering impatient imprecations at it and his leg. The last I heard of him, 
I stopped in the mist to listen, and the file was still going. Chapter 4 I fully expected to find a constable in the kitchen waiting to take me up, but not only was there no constable there, but no discovery had yet been made of the robbery. Mrs. Joe was prodigiously busy in getting the house ready for the festivities of the day, and Joe had been put upon the kitchen doorstep to keep him out of the dustpan, an article into which his destiny always led him sooner or later, when my sister was vigorously reaping the floors of her establishment. And where the deuce have you been? was Mrs. Joe's Christmas salutation, when I and my conscience showed ourselves. I said I had been down to hear the carols. Ah, well, observed Mrs. Joe, you might have done worse. Not a doubt about that, I thought. Perhaps if I weren't a blacksmith's wife, and what's the same thing, a slave with her apron never off. I should have been to hear the carols, said Mrs. Joe. I'm rather partial to carols myself, and that's the best of reasons for my never hearing any. Joe, who had ventured into the kitchen after me as the dustpan had retired before us, drew the back of his hand across his nose with a consolatory air when Mrs. Joe darted a look at him, and, when her eyes were withdrawn, secretly crossed his two forefingers and exhibited them to me as our token that Mrs. Joe was in a cross temper. This was so much her normal state that Joe and I would often, for weeks together, be, as to our fingers, like monumental crusaders as to their legs. We were to have a superb dinner consisting of a leg of pickled pork and greens, and a pair of roast stuffed fowls. A handsome mince pie had been made yesterday morning, which accounted for the mincemeat not being missed, and the pudding was already on the boil. These extensive arrangements occasioned us to be cut off unceremoniously in respect of breakfast. For I ain't, said Mrs. Joe, I ain't a-going to have no formal cramming and busting and washing up now with what I've got before me, I promise you. So, we had our slices served out as if we were two thousand troops on a forced march instead of a man and a boy at home, and we took gulps of milk and water with apologetic countenances from a jug on the dresser. In the meantime, Mrs. Joe put clean white curtains up and tacked a new flowered flounce across the wide chimney to replace the old one and uncovered the little state parlor across the passage, which was never uncovered at any other time, but passed the rest of the year in a cool haze of silver paper which even extended to the four little white crockery poodles on the mantel shelf, each with a black nose and a basket of flowers in his mouth, and each the counterpart of the other. 
Mrs. Joe was a very clean housekeeper, but had an exquisite art of making her cleanliness more uncomfortable and unacceptable than dirt itself. Cleanliness is next to godliness, and some people do the same by their religion. My sister, having so much to do, was going to church vicariously, that is to say, Joe and I were going. In his working clothes, Joe was a well-knit, characteristic-looking blacksmith. In his holiday clothes, he was more like a scarecrow in good circumstances than anything else. Nothing that he wore then fitted him or seemed to belong to him, and everything that he wore then grazed him. On the present festive occasion, he emerged from his room, which the blithe bells were going. The picture of mystery, in a full suit of Sunday penintials. As to me, I think my sister must have had some general idea that I was a young offender whom an accusure policeman had taken up on my birthday and delivered over to her to be dealt with accordingly to the outraged majesty of the law. I was always treated as if I had insisted on being born in opposition to the dictates of reason, religion, and morality, and against the dissuading arguments of my best friends. Even when I was taken to have new suits of clothes, the tailor had orders to make them like a kind of reformatory, and on no account to let me have the free use of my limbs. Joe and I going to church, therefore, must have been a moving spectacle for compassionate minds. Yet, what I suffered outside was nothing to what I underwent within. The terrors that had assailed me whenever Mrs. Joe had gone near the pantry or out of the room were only to be equaled by the remorse with which my mind dwelt on what my hands had done under the weight of my wicked secret. I pondered whether the church would be powerful enough to shield me from the vengeance of the terrible young man if I divulged to that establishment. I conceived the idea that the time when the bands were read and when the clergyman said, Ye are now to declare it, would be the time for me to rise and propose a private converse in the vestry. I am far from being sure that I might not have astonished our small congregation by resorting to this extreme measure, but for its being Christmas Day and no Sunday. Mr. Wopsle, the clerk at the church, was to dine with us, and Mr. Hubble, the wheelwright, and Mrs. Hubble, and Uncle Pumblechook. Joe's uncle, but Mrs. Joe appropriated him, who was a well-to-do corn chandler in the nearest town, and drove his own chassis cart. The dinner hour was half past one. When Joe and I got home, we found the table laid and Mrs. Joe dressed, and the dinner dressing, and the front door unlocked. It never was at any other time for the company to enter by, 
and everything most splendid, and still not a word of the robbery. The time came, without bringing with it any relief to my feelings, and the company came. Mr. Wopsle, united to a Roman nose and a large shining bald forehead, had a deep voice which he was uncommonly proud of. Indeed, it was understood among his acquaintances that if you could only give him his head, he would read the clergyman into fits. He himself confessed that if the church was thrown open, meaning to competition, he would not despair of making his mark in it. The church not being thrown open, he was, as I have said, our clerk. But he punished the almonds tremendously, and when he gave out the psalm, always giving the whole verse, he looked all around the congregation first, as much as to say, You have heard, my friend, overhead. Oblige me with your opinion of this style. I opened the door to that company, making believe that it was a habit of ours to open that door. And I opened it first to Mr. Wopsle, next to Mr. and Mrs. Hubble, and last of all to Uncle Pumplechuck, N.B., I was not allowed to call him uncle under the severest penalties. Mrs. Joe, said Uncle Pumplechuck, a large, hard-breathing, middle-aged slow man, with a mouth like a fish, dull staring eyes, and sandy hair standing upright on his head, so that he looked as if he had been all but choked, and had that moment come too. I have brought you, as the compliments of the seasons I have brought you, Mum, a bottle of sherry wine, and I have brought you, Mum, a bottle of port wine. Every Christmas day he presented himself as a profound novelty, with exactly the same words, and carrying the two bottles like dumbbells. Every Christmas day. Mrs. Joe replied, as she now replied, Oh, uncle, pum, bull, chalk. This is kind. Every Christmas day, he retorted, as he now retorted, It's no more than your merits. And now you are all bobbish, and howls six pennorth of halfpence meaning me. We dined on these occasions in the kitchen and adjourned for the nuts and oranges and apples to the parlor, which was a change very like Joe's change from his working clothes to his Sunday dress. My sister was uncommonly lively on the present occasion and indeed was generally more gracious in the society of Mrs. Hubble than in other company. I remember Mrs. Hubble as a little curly, sharp-edged person in sky blue who held a conventionally juvenile position because she had married Mr. Hubble. I don't know at what remote period when she was much younger than he. I remember Mr. Hubble 
as a tough, high-shouldered, stooping old man of a sawdusty fragrance, with his legs extraordinarily wide apart, so that in my short days I always saw some miles of open country between them when I met him coming up the lane. Among this good company, I should have felt myself, even if I hadn't robbed the pantry in a false position, not because I was squeezed in at an acute angle of the tablecloth, with the table in my chest and the pumble chicken elbow in my eye, nor because I was not allowed to speak, I didn't want to speak, nor because I was regaled with the scaly tips of the drumsticks of the fowls and with those obscure corners of pork of which the pig, when living, had had the least reason to be vain. No, I should not have minded that if they would only have left me alone, but they wouldn't leave me alone. They seemed to think the opportunity lost if they failed to point the conversation at me every now and then and stick the point into me. I might have been an unfortunate little bull in a Spanish arena. I got so smartingly touched up by these moral goads. It began the moment we sat down to dinner. Mr. Wopsle said grace with theatrical declamation. As it now appears to me, something like a religious cross of the ghost in Hamlet with Richard III, and ended with the proper aspiration that we might be truly grateful, upon which my sister fixed me with her eye and said in a low reproachful voice, Do you hear that? Be grateful. Especially, said Mr. Pumblechook, be grateful, boy, to them which brought you up by hand. Mrs. Hubble shook her head and contemplating me with a mournful presentiment that I should come to no good, asked, Why is it that the young are never grateful? This moral mystery seemed too much for the company until Mr. Hubble tearfully solved it by saying, Naturally, wishes. Everybody then murmured, True, and looked at me in a particularly unpleasant and personal manner. Joe's station and influence were something feebler, if possible, when there was company than when there was none. But he always aided and comforted me when he could, in some way of his own, and he always did so at dinner time by giving me gravy, if there were any. There being plenty of gravy today, Joe spooned into my plate at this point about half a pint. A little later on in the dinner, Mr. Wopsle reviewed the sermon with some severity and intimated in the usual hypothetical case of the church being thrown open what kind of sermon he would have given them. After favoring them with some heads of that discourse, he remarked that he considered the subject of the day's homely, ill-chosen, which was the less excusable, he added, when there were so many subjects going about. True again, said Uncle Pumblechalk. You've hit it, sir. Plenty of subjects going about. 
for them that know how to put salt upon their tails. That's what's wanted. A man needn't go far to find a subject. If he's ready with his salt box, Mr. Pumblechalk added after a short interval of reflection. Look at pork alone. There's a subject. If you want a subject, look at pork. True, sir. Many a moral for the young, returned Mr. Wopsle. And I knew he was going to lug me in before he said it. Might be deduced from that text. You listen to this, said my sister to me in a severe parenthesis. Joe gave me some more gravy. Swine, pursued Mr. Wopsle in his deepest voice, pointing his fork at my blushes, as if he were mentioning my Christian name. Swine were the companions of the prodigal. The gluttony of swine is put before us as an example to the young. I thought this pretty well in him, who had been praising up the pork for being so plump and juicy. What is detestable in a pig is more detestable in a boy. Or girl, suggested Mr. Hubble. Of course, or girl, Mr. Hubble, assented Mr. Wopsle rather irritably, but there is no girl present. Besides, said Mr. Pumblechook, turning sharp on me, think what you've got to be grateful for. If you'd been born a squeaker, he was, if ever a child was, said my sister most empathetically. Joe gave me some more gravy. Well, but I mean a four-footed squeaker, said Mr. Pumblechook. If you had been born such, would you have been here now? Not you. Unless in that form, said Mr. Wopsle, nodding towards the dish. But I don't mean in that form, sir, returned Mr. Pumblechook, who had an uh, objection to being interrupted. I mean, enjoying himself with his elders and betters and improving himself with their conversation and rolling in the lap of luxury. Would he have been doing that? No, he wouldn't. And what would have been your destination? Turning on me again. You would have been disposed of for so many shillings according to the market price of the article, and Dunstable, the butcher, would have come up to you as you lay in your straw. He would have whipped you under his left arm, and with his right he would have tucked up his frock to get a penknife from out of his waistcoat pocket, and he would have shed your blood and had your life. No bringing up by hand then, not a bit of it. Joe offered me more gravy, which I was afraid to take. He was a world of trouble to you, ma'am, said Mrs. Hubble, commiserating my sister. Trouble, echoed my sister. Trouble? Then entered on a fearful catalogue of all the illnesses I had been guilty of and all the acts of sleeplessness I had committed, 
in all the high places I had tumbled from, in all the low places I had tumbled into, in all the injuries I had done myself, and all the times she had wished me in my grave, and I had contumaciously refused to go there. I think the Romans must have aggravated one another very much with their noses. Perhaps they became the restless people they were in consequence. Anyhow, Mr. Wopsle's Roman nose so aggravated me during the recital of my misdemeanors that I should have liked to pull it until he howled. But all I had endured up to this time was nothing in comparison with the awful feelings that took possession of me when the pause was broken which ensued upon my sister's recital, and in which pause everybody had looked at me as I felt painfully conscious with indignation and abhorrence. Yet, said Mr. Pumblechook, leading the company gently back to the theme from which they had strayed, pork, regarded as biled, is rich, too, ain't it? Have a little brandy, uncle, said my sister. Oh, heavens, it had come at last. He would find it weak. He would say it was weak, and I was lost. I held tight to the leg of the table under the cloth with both hands and awaited my fate. My sister went for the stone bottle, came back with the stone bottle, and poured his brandy out. No one else taking any. The wretched man traveled with his glass, took it up, looked at it through the light, put it down, prolonged my misery. At this time, Mrs. Joe and Joe were briskly clearing the table for the pie and pudding. I couldn't keep my eyes off him, always holding tight by the leg of the table with my hands and feet. I saw the miserable creature finger his glass playfully, take it up, smile, throw his head back, and drink the brandy off. Instantly afterwards, the company were seized with unspeakable consternation owing to his springing to his feet, turning round several times in an appalling, spasmodic whooping, coughing dance, and rushing out the door. He then became visible through the window, violently plunging and exploriating, making the most hideous face and apparently out of his mind. I held on tight while Mrs. Joe and Joe ran to him. I did not know how I had done it, but I had no doubt I had murdered him somehow. In my dreadful situation, it was a relief when he was brought back and surveying the company all around us as if they had disagreed with him, sank down into his chair with one significant gasp, tar. I had filled the bottle from the tar water jug. I knew he would be worse by and by. I moved the table, like a median of the present day, by the vigor of my unseen hold upon it. Tar, cried my sister in amazement. Why, how ever could tar come there? But Uncle Pumblechook, who was omnipotent in that kitchen, wouldn't hear the word wouldn't hear of the subject, imperiously waved it all away with his hand, 
and asked for hot gin and water. My sister, who had begun to be alarmingly meditative, had to employ herself actively in getting the gin, the hot water, the sugar, and the lemon peel, and mixing them. For the time at least, I was saved. I held on to the leg of the table, but clutched it now with the fever of gratitude. By degrees, I became calm enough to release my grasp and partake of the pudding. Mr. Pumblechook partook of pudding. All partook of pudding. The course terminated, and Mr. Pumblechook had begun to beam under the genial influence of gin and water. I began to think I should get over the day when my sister said to Joe, clean plates, cold. I clutched the leg of the table again immediately and pressed it to my bosom as if it had been the companion of my youth and friend of my soul. I foresaw what was coming and I felt that this time I was really gone. You must taste, said my sister, addressing the guest with her best grace. You must taste, to finish with, such a delightful and delicious present of Uncle Pumperchooks. They must. Let them not hope to taste it. You must know, said my sister, rising. It's a pie, a savory pork pie. The company murmured their compliments. Uncle Pumperchook, sensible of having deserved well of his fellow creatures, said quite vivaciously, all things considered. Well, Mrs. Joe, we'll do our best endeavors. Let us have a cut at this same pie. My sister went out to get it. I heard her footsteps proceed to the pantry. I saw Mr. Pumblechook balance his knife. I saw reawakened appetite in the Roman nostrils of Mr. Wopsle. I heard Mr. Hubble remark that a bit of savory pork pie would lay atop of anything you could mention and do no harm. And I heard Joe say, you shall have some, Pip. I have never been absolutely certain whether I uttered a shrill yell of terror, merely in spirit or in the bodily hearing of the company. I felt that I could bear no more and that I must run away. I released the leg of the table and ran for my life, but I ran no further than the house door, for there I ran head foremost into a party of soldiers with their muskets, one of whom held out a pair of handcuffs to me, saying, Here you are. Look sharp. Come on. Thank you for listening to Sleepy Time with Rogan. Tune in soon for more exciting bedtime stories. Good night. And thank you.